This is life. I mean, the Christian faith is being together. It's not sermons, you know? And so that's just what we're invited into. So we're walking through the story of Ruth. And I want to just pause there and reflect on the idea that Ruth is a story. This is always very, very profound to me, um, just the idea of story. I have a book on my coffee table. And to be honest, I don't even know what the book is, but it has a quote on it. It says, the universe is not made up of atoms. It's made up of stories. And I've always loved that because there's some truth in the idea that it's like, there's a tendency in the modern mind to go to the fact that like, the world is kind of just the facts and figures. It's like the things that you can feel and touch. But truer than that, the only thing that actually matters about the universe is stories, right? It's my story, and it's your story. It's our story, and it's God's story. And so, um, and so it's, it's no wonder that when we're given, uh, when, when God presents himself to the world through the Bible, he presents himself through a story. It's one of the things that's very unique to the Christian religion. God is a personal God, and God reveals himself through story. It could have been through facts and figures, but you would never know him personally if it was that way. Cue the Bob Gaglione story of the day. I don't know if you guys remember, but last week I promised, because my dad's on sabbatical, I will give you a Bob Gaglione story every week since I know that you miss him so much. Here's what story can do. When I think about my dad, if somebody came up to me and said, I want you to describe your, da- my, describe your dad to me, I could say a bunch of things. I could say... He's six foot seven. He's a South Philly Italian guy. He's, um, somebody say amen. <laughs> um, he's a pastor of a church. He was an all-American basketball player. He's been married for 35 years. He's a father of four. You start to get a picture of him if I tell you the facts about my dad, right? But the reality is you'll know a lot about my dad, but you will never know my dad unless I start telling you stories. For example, my dad really likes the zoo, That's a fact. But if I tell you a story about my dad at the zoo, you will learn much more about my dad. And so let me tell you a story. Um, I was in Kenya for a couple months, and my dad came, uh, well, my family came to visit me around Thanksgiving, and we had Thanksgiving dinner in Kenya. Um, And before they came, I was kind of like planning out an itinerary of things that we would do. And one of those things was I really wanted to take my dad to uh, the giraffe sanctuary. So a giraffe sanctuary is basically like some giraffes that couldn't survive out in the wild. They're brought into this like couple acre farm, basically. It's a little small mini zoo. And kids are given little pellets, and you'll walk up to these 20-foot giraffes, and the giraffes will eat the pellets like right out of your hand, you know? This isn't like Six Flags Great Adventure where you have to like be stuck in the car. This is like Africa where there's no like legal rules to anything. So you literally just walk up with a giraffe right there, and, you just, and it just eats out of your hand. And so I was like, my dad is obsessed with zoos, and I was like, he is going to love this place. But nothing prepared any of us for how much he actually loved the place. We paid the entrance fee of $10, and we walk in, and literally, when my dad sees 20-foot giraffes and the fact that you can just feed them, he goes and he's pushing little kids out of the way. (laughs) And he goes right to the front, six foot seven, so obviously he has the highest reach of everything, all the giraffes next all come towards him, and he's literally sitting here. It's like a, you know, Lion King moment. He's sitting here feeding all of these giraffes, and all of the other little kids are down here, and they're like... And so it goes until it literally eats every pellet in his hand, and I'm not joking. I am not joking. You can ask my mom. He starts grabbing pellets out of little kids' hands and putting them in. And he couldn't help himself. My mom is filming. I'm watching with my jaw dropped, buying more pellets from the guy and putting them into the kids' hands that he's taken them out of. 
See, the point is this. I can tell you that my dad likes the zoo, but until I tell you that story, you don't really understand how much he likes the zoo. And you start to understand a little bit more about him through that story as well. You start to understand a little bit about his character. You start to understand that um, he's somebody who has a childlike wonder when he goes into certain situations, right? Or he doesn't have much regard for other people in that <laughs> childlike wonder. You pick up certain things about him. And so I just, I feel like a lot of people sometimes struggle to read the Bible because they open it up and they say, I don't know, it doesn't really speak to me. And I just want to remind you that when we open up God's word, this is the story of himself. And so when we look through Ruth, Ruth this is a story of Boaz and Naomi and Ruth, but it's more so a story about God. That's why it's in Scripture. And so every time we open this up, we're going to be discovering something about God's character, about the person that he is, because he's personal and he desires for you to know him. And that's why he's sharing himself through stories. Make sense? With that said, why don't we open up to Ruth chapter 2. I had a chance um, about a month ago to go to South Sudan, <clears throat> which is a place not many people want to go to. <clears throat> it's ranked as the third most dangerous country in the world. And to be honest, I was pretty worried to go. Um, I, uh, I looked up a lot about it, and there's a reason it's ranked the third most dangerous country in the world. There's been a lot of civil war there, and there's still a lot of um, unrest, and there's a rebel army that's still rolling around, and that's just life there. Uh, we support an organization called Water is Basic. Uh, anybody know Water is Basic? They were here for, oh yeah. Let's give them a hand. Uh, Water is Basic is a pretty amazing organization. What they do is they, um, they install wells for people who don't have access to clean drinking water, and they actually install them in conflict regions. And the idea is this, when conflicts are over, everyone is still stuck in refugee camps. They can't return home because there's no clean water. And so throughout a civil war, Water is Basic has been drilling a thousand wells in South Sudan, and now that the civil war is over, people are streaming back from refugee camps because there's clean water, and they're rebuilding a country from the ground up. It's like an incredible thing that they do. So um, earlier this year, Water is Basic asked me to be on their board, and the rule is, if you're going to be on the board, you have to go over to South Sudan. So I was like, mm, I, can I be on the board and not go over to South Sudan? But, uh, but rules are rules, and so I went. And um, a couple weeks before I went, uh, the uh, pilot, you can't really just fly like an airliner in there. You charter a flight. And so our charter pilot texted me, and he said, hey, I heard you live in the US. Can I, can I send you some stuff to carry over with you? I said, sure, man, whatever you need. He goes, great, body bags. And I was like, wait, <laughs> uh, isn't that like bad luck? I don't want to be flying with body bags, you know? And, uh, and he was just like, no, nah, it's all good. Thanks, mate. So, you know, body bags showed up in my house, and I carried over two suitcases full of body bags. So I'm actually flying with the pilot, and this is a small plane, so I'm, like, right next to him. And I was like, hey, what do you think you need the body bags for? And he goes, uh, he goes actually, when I drop you guys off, I'm going over to Congo. There's Ebola there. There's a lot of violence and conflict. And so um, they've run out of body bags, and we need some more. So I was like, Phew, good. All right. Um, I was like, is that the most dangerous place that you fly into right now? And he goes, oh, no, this is the most dangerous place we fly into, <laughs> South Sudan. So I'm like, ah, come on. <laughs> but, um, but it actually was an amazing experience. And you see, um, you see a place that's totally broken and totally war-torn. And obviously what rises to the top of all of that is the people's resilience 
um, their character, strength, and there's a lot of people there who want to rebuild a nation, and it's an amazing thing. If you don't think that's a plug for supporting water is basic, think again. Um, while I was there, I met, some, I met some pretty interesting people. One of the people that I met was a guy named James Bach, um, which is a funny name for a Sudanese man, but so be it. And um, I was at, uh, I was at, we were at dinner, and I said, James, I don't really know much about you. Can you tell me your story? He goes, yeah, sure. Um, I was one of the lost boys of South Sudan. Do you know what that is? And I said, no. Uh, I didn't know as much as you. I said, no, I, I, I don't. I've heard of that. You know, I, I think there's a documentary on it, but I don't know who the lost boys of South Sudan are. And he said, when I was, um, when I was eight, Sudan was, it was the height of the civil war in Sudan, and so me and 15,000 other children made a 1,500-mile journey from Sudan to the refugee camps that were on the border of Kenya and Uganda. While we were making the 1,500-mile journey, that's half the distance of the United States, as an eight-year-old, um, he said, while we were making the journey, here's what was happening to us. Government was bombing the roads that we were on, so we would have to walk at night. And he goes, you would walk at night and you would hear planes flying overhead and you knew you were in trouble when you would hear the whistle of the bombs dropping. And you would scatter and get onto the side of the road as quick as possible before shrapnel ripped people apart. He said, if that wasn't bad enough, if you wanted to walk in the day, what would happen is you would get conscripted, conscripted into the rebel army. So they would, they would just grab you out of line if you were old enough and you looked like you had a decent body. And they would say, you're part of the rebel army now. Here's an AK-47. We need you to go kill those kids over there. If you didn't want to do that, they would just shoot you in the head. On top of that, it's a 1,500-mile journey through Sudan. And you need food and water. And so these eight-year-olds are going to try and find any drinkable water and any food that they can find. Most of them die of starvation or dehydration. And then on top of that, because they were walking at night to avoid the bombs, they had to watch for lions and hyenas. He said he would lock arms with his friends and they would walk in a line like this to appear bigger in the night, but sometimes the lions and hyenas would pick kids off the edges. And a week later, I was at a 4th of July party on a rooftop in the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And I couldn't help thinking, why was James Bach born into his situation in Sudan, and Mike Gaglione was born into his situation in America? Have you ever thought about that before? So those are some of the unanswerable questions of life. And Ruth chapter 2 does not have the answer to that question. But the reason I bring up that story is because I think that Ruth 2 does address a certain thing that's very important. We don't really know why we're dealt the cards that we're dealt in life. And some people have been given very little and some people have been given very much. What Ruth 2 reveals to us is the character, the kind of people that we can be in the situations with the cards that we were dealt. And that's what we'll discover um, through the text. Ruth is a story about romance, right? It's a love story. And love stories are based around attraction. So for us, like when we watch TV shows and movies, attraction is kind of like, it's very physical, or there's an intangible. How do I know that I love him? How do I feel about him? It's like kind of like, I'm in the coffee shop, my eyes look up, she looks down, I look up, she looks down. You know, that's like, that's attraction to us. Um, I'd, I'd like to make the case that this is a different kind of attraction. This isn't necessarily modern romance. This is attraction of character to character. I think that character attracts character. And what you'll find in this story is that I think that Ruth and Boaz were destined 
to be together because they were two people of immense character, given very different circumstances in life, but watch what they do in the circumstances and look at the character they have, and it was no wonder why they came together, why they were attracted to each other. So with that said, I'm going to read Ruth chapter 2. And this will be a little bit long. I'm going to read 1 through 14. But I just kind of want to like knock it out so we're all looking at the same thing and we know what I'm talking about. And then we'll dig into it. So Ruth chapter 2. My title says Ruth meets Boaz. Isn't Boaz such a good name? Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So what's the character of Ruth? What do we see in her story? What kind of character does she have? Um... We know, that she was, we know that she doesn't have much going for her in life. She's a widow. She's a foreigner. And she's basically at the lowest rung on the, on the chain of you know, hierarchy of power and privilege in this culture. And we find her gleaning. Did anybody glean this week? I haven't gleaned in a while. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I've actually never gleaned. Nor did I even know what gleaning was. And so I had to go look it up in a commentary. You might not know what gleaning is either. Luckily, I've looked it up in a commentary, and I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Um, In Deuteronomy 24, uh, God commands Israel, there are certain laws uh, in in how they should relate to one another. And and some of those laws revolve around this idea of gleaning. Gleaning was uh, what I I would consider like an ancient welfare system in Israel. And so... What would happen is farmers were not allowed to, to harvest their fields to the margins. They had to leave something around like 10% left over. And that 10% was what was left for those who wanted to glean. Those who would glean were people who were marginalized. So it would be for widows and orphans and immigrants and people who didn't have access to land. And so those people who were like absolutely destitute could go and they could glean and they could get enough to make it through the day or a couple days and store up a little bit for the winter. God provided these gleaning laws to make sure that there was a welfare system that would be able to catch people and that there wouldn't be people in like absolute destitute poverty dying of starvation. So we find Ruth gleaning. And I think that that's kind of fascinating 
because I look at the life of Ruth and I see that she has every chance to be a victim. Um, she has lost her husband. She's in foreign land. She has a mother-in-law who believes that she's cursed. Some people don't even like their mother-in-law when they don't believe they're cursed. <laughs> and Ruth is waking up every day to a woman who basically thinks that God's hand is against her. And she wakes up in the morning. She tells Naomi, I'm going to go to the field and glean. There's this idea when you look at Ruth's life where you're like, man, God has really given her absolutely nothing. Like, he's taken everything away. But the truth is, even though it's a small thing, God, God did give her something. He gave her gleaning laws. And Ruth is working with that. She's getting up in the morning and she's gleaning. And there's dignity in that. And she's able to at least take something of her life that she can control. And she's walking that out faithfully. That seems like character. I was, um, you know, as I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of a person that I grew up with. Um, I had a friend, Bobby, and um, <laughs> Lisa, I'm already going to start crying. <laughs> I, had, um, I had a friend, Bobby, that I was growing up with, and, I, and we would hang out all the time, and we would be at his house, play video games, all that type of stuff. And Lisa would come home. Uh, she was Bobby's mom, and she basically raised her kids as a single mom. A little house in Ridley Park. And, um, and we would, uh, she would come home at like 9 or 10. She worked for, um, you know, she worked at the deli of a grocery store. She would come home at 9 or 10, and I would watch her come home, and she would, you know, check some emails on the computer or something like that, maybe make a phone call, and then she would start filling out orders for Mary Kay. Um, she had like a bunch of, she, you know, she sold makeup on the side, and she had a bunch of clients, and she would have to like ship those orders out. And so we would go to bed around 12 or 1, and, um, and she would still be there at the, uh, at the kitchen table, and then I would wake up in the morning, and she'd have, um, she'd be up, and she'd either be out to work, or have breakfast, or something like that, and I just remember, like, she was always present, and she was always so surrendered, her kids were always in church, I mean, they grew up knowing what Jesus was like, and, um, and, you know, she balanced, she somehow balanced three jobs, and I just look at that, and I'm like, man, like, I don't know. It just seems like she's working with so little. She's got a job at a deli, and then Mary Kay at night, and she's trying to raise three kids in this family where she's like a single mom. So a couple months ago, two months ago, I was thinking about this, and I was reflecting on it, and I was like, man, Lisa is one of those people who has just made Jesus very real to me. Like, seeing how she, how she worked with very little and just surrendered that, and how she walked faithfully in it. So I sent her a text, and I said, Lisa, I don't know if this is still your phone, but I woke up a few days ago, and I just had this grateful feeling that you were one of the people that truly demonstrated who Jesus was to me. Maybe I didn't even understand it at the time, but the older I get, the more I realize that. I hope things are good. So she sends me this text back. Wow, what an amazing, encouraging text. Thank you for sharing. All glory to Jesus, who gives us the privilege to help build his kingdom. There are, in my life, such minor setbacks that make me a victim. I like, on my car right now, I don't know why, but the plastic fell off of my taillight. And I was just like, come on, seriously? Like, the whole universe is conspiring against me. This car is falling apart, you know? And the reality is, like, it's just my mindset and my attitude is just one in which, like, any minor thing that comes against me, I just take it as a victim. And the true character is to be able to face those things and to take whatever God has given you, whether it's little or great, and to be faithful to those and transcend that with your attitude for it. Listen, I have, um, I have not seen Lisa in probably five to ten years. <laughs> 
And, um, and, you know, as far as I know, I assume she lives in the same house. She might work at the same deli, and she might still do Mary Kay. Um, but, I, you know, it was great to connect with her and watch her be faithful. I had no idea that of all of the days that she would ever come to Calvary Chapel again, she would literally be sitting here right now. It's the first time in, like, ten years. So can we honor you, Lisa? I just, I, I see that attitude, and it's just a, it's, it's a Ruth kind of character. It's like all Ruth had was gleaning, and she was faithful to that, and God made something absolutely amazing out of it. Um, and my friend James, James Bach in South Sudan. <laughs> James had the opportunity, once he was in the refugee camp for like 10 years, they gave him the opportunity to emigrate to the United States. I don't know if you know this, but the lost boys of South Sudan were all given a free pass, basically, to live here. James turned that down. And to understand what that's like, I mean, the United States is heaven and Sudan is hell. That's the way that they would describe it. James turned that down because through that process, he came to know the Lord. And he felt like the Lord's call in his life was to do counseling. And so now, in South Sudan, he runs a trauma therapy group that goes around the entire country. As they rebuild as a nation, he works to heal people through the trauma that they've experienced and counsel them through that. Some people are given so little in life, and they're faithful, and God makes it something amazing. So that's Ruth, and, um, and Ruth shows immense character, and now I want to look at the character of Boaz. Um, what do we recognize about the character of Boaz? You could probably recognize a hundred things. I just want to focus on one strong attribute that I see in this man. Look at 2, verse 5. Um, this just tends to jump out to me. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back from, with Naomi from the country of Moab. Why is that profound? <laughs> well, I just think that's a weird sentence, first of all. She's the young Moabite woman who came back from Moab, right? Oh, I'm Mike. I'm the American from America. And are you the German man from Germany? Like, why is that written that way? And actually, as you go through the whole book of Ruth, you find, all, you find that like one of the most consistent things throughout this book, the author really wants you to know, Ruth is a Moabite. He's constantly reminding us of that. And this guy in the field is doubly reminding us of that. No, the woman, it's a Moabite woman from Moab. And here's what I think is interesting about it. Boaz sees something different than that. Um, a little history of Moab and Israel. It's like, I don't know if you know too much about it, but these are two nations that are kind of like, uh, there's a, they're, they're a little bit kindred. There's some family history in it, but it's two tribes that have split off, and now they have two separate nations. Moab and Israel were at war with each other frequently. They sometimes were the oppressor. They sometimes were the oppressed. So re racial relations were not good between these two countries. And, um, and so... Uh, being an immigrant in Israel was one thing, but being a Moabite was a totally different thing. Um, Boaz actually says, I want you to stay in my field because in my field you'll be safe. Safe from what? Safe from violence. Like, there are people whose parents probably died at the hands of Moabites, and so Ruth is walking into this, and when people hear she's from Moab, all of a sudden everybody um, takes notice. She's at the bottom rung of society, and she's racially profiled. 
So, um, so that's what these men see. This is the Moabite from Moab. What does Boaz see? It's interesting. Like if you look at um, if you look at verse eleven, uh, Ruth has this. You know, he basically says, "Hey, I want you to stay in just my field." Right. Right after he's asked, Who's, what woman is this? She's the Moabite, right? You have a chance to dismiss her as a foreigner, as a person in racially profile. What does he do? He goes, no, you stay in this field. I want you to stay in this field, and here's why. I want to keep you safe from harm, and I want to make sure that you're provided for. Why? Why does he do that? She falls on her face, and she says, why have you found so much favor in me? I mean, look what she says. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should even take notice of me because I'm a foreigner. She's very aware of her status. She's like, I'm a Moabite woman from Moab. Listen to what Boaz says. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz does something immediately that very few people do. He acknowledges her story. And I think that's such an important thing in emulating the character of Christ is to move away from labels and into stories. The foreman in the field saw a label. She's a Moabite woman from Moab, and Boaz sees a story. Seeing someone's story is the most humanizing thing that you can do. Um, There's dignity in people's stories, and there's also love and understanding. When you actually get into someone's story, it's impossible to hold a label anymore. You start to understand the motivations and what makes somebody tick and why, why they act certain ways in certain situations. You see all of that. But Boaz does more than just that. If it stopped there, it wouldn't be enough. He does something else that I think is even more profound and is like the number one characteristic that followers of Christ can emulate. He affirms her future. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I love that. Do you think that Ruth, with all of the knocks against her, and the fact that she's gleaning, the little thing that she has dignity in doing, she's just picking the edges of the field, do you think she needed to hear at that time that God was going to show up in her future? And what Boaz does is he acknowledges her story. He says, I see the sacrifices you made. And I see that you've come here. I see that you, that you want to see if God will deliver you, if God will be good, if you can take refuge here. I just want to tell you something. I know God. God's the kind of person who honors the sacrifices that you've done. I want to speak life into this situation. Whatever you're doing now, God's going to repay and he's going to honor what you've done. We have the chance in life as believers, as people who follow God, we have the chance to do what the world does and to look at people as labels. A lot of times in the church, we can label people for several things. Here's a big one. Divorce. You could be a porn addict. You could be a bad dad or a bad parent. You could be Someone who's crippled by anxiety. You could have body issues, body image issues, issues, whatever. And the list could go on and on and on, right? And these are the labels. These are the things that we tend to assign to people. Oh, that woman? Yeah, she's divorced, you know? That guy that, uh, you know, that guy that kind of sits on the fringes? Yeah, he's addicted to porn. Um, yeah, you know, my dad was a bad dad. Or maybe some of you guys think this about your children. You're frustrated with them and you've labeled them certain ways, right? 
they're backslidden, they're whatever. We assign these labels um, to people. And like the ultimate reality that I think that we're called to is to move away from labels and to move into acknowledging people's stories and affirming their future. When I, um, when the reality is when you engage in someone's story, like Boaz was aware enough to know, he was like, I heard about you. I know where you come from, and I know what the future is for people like you as you walk through this. Um, I look at some of these things, and it makes me think of uh, Romans 12.10, where it says, um, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. How do we honor people? We honor people by engaging in their story. We acknowledge their story, and we affirm their future. I ha- there's an interesting thing about this. When I think about this verse, um, did you ever, like, when you were younger, somebody, like, actually saw you in some way um, doing something that you thought, like, you didn't really see in yourself, but they called something out of you? It's like some people, like, didn't know they were a good writer. And somebody came up and said, you know what, like, when you write something, it just, it's fun to read. And that, like, makes something of you. When, you know, maybe in sports, you kind of had somebody who said, you're really good at this, you should pursue it. Or maybe you start your first job and somebody says, you know what, you're a great salesman, you should, um, you know, you should kind of consider going on this path. Or, man, when you speak, people listen, you should be a teacher. And something kind of wakes up with you and like stands up a little more, you know? That's the power of what you can do like when you affirm people. Now that's just worldly. There's nothing really to that besides just recognizing that in someone else. But the power of spiritually affirming some, someone is totally different. Um, I remember, I don't know if you guys have heard the saying, hurt people hurt people. Have you ever heard that? One of the most profound quotes in the world, and it's one of the things they walk you through in counseling. They say, you know, when you're, like, when you're in counseling and you're like, my mom did this to me and that's why I became a horrible person and blah, 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 and you blame your parents for everything, usually a good counselor will walk you through what's called a genogram. It's like your Ancestry.com like DNA um, tree, and they'll walk you through that, and they say, do you know anything about how your grandmom treated your mom when you were growing up? And what they do is they make you engage into the story of your parents. Most of the time, you've just sucked from your parents. That's about it, you know? But, like, when you engage with the story, when you imagine your mom as a child and what her mom said to her about herself and the things that her dad did to her, when you start to, like, when you start to actually engage with the story... You humanize the person, and you can't really label them anymore. And so um, the idea is hurt people hurt people. It's not necessarily that these things are done to you because this person is such a terrible person. It's that they've been hurt before. And whenever somebody is hurt, they tend to hurt people. So I've always heard that quote, but like the truth that I'm learning and the truth that like you get from living in a culture of honor in a Christian community is this. Just as much as hurt people hurt people, loved people love people. And that's the power that we have in the church that I don't even think people will tap into in the outside world. We have the power to love people into the destinies. When they don't believe that they're capable of something, when they believe in labels, we can speak life into their situation and we can affirm the future that they can be in Christ. Um, this isn't my idea. I'm not like a person who's like, just like, uh, you know, I'm 32 years old, so I figured out this is the way that you should operate, and I hope that all you 55-year-olds go along with it. It's not my idea. Um, I actually took this from Jesus. <laughs> if you just watch the life of Jesus, he literally does this in every chapter. Just go through the gospel, close your eyes, and open up to a chapter. You will never find a place where Jesus is not acknowledging someone's story and affirming their future. He was the ultimate guy who hung around with people who were labeled, right? I mean, you're like, 
This is the guy who eats with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards, right? Like, those are all labels. Those are what society gives them. And Jesus was accused of hanging out with all these people who were labels. What does he do in those instances? Well, I mean, what you see is that he just engages with a story and he affirms someone's future. So I think about the woman caught in adultery. Label, adulteress, right? They bring her to Jesus, literally caught in the act of adultery. That must have been awkward, right? She comes in, they're uh, they're all around her, and they've got stones in their hand, and they're ready to stone her. And he says, the person who's without sin, throw the first stone. Everybody drops them, they walk away. He stoops down, he says, woman, where are your accusers? She looks around, I don't know, where they all go? (laughs) And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. When you think about that, like the power of what that is, it's like Jesus sitting there and he's saying, I acknowledge, I understand, you literally were just caught in adultery. You're an adulteress, great. I acknowledge your story, but look what he says, go and sin no more. I'm affirming the future. The identity of you is not this. The identity of you is a person who can walk forward in this. You can actually live life and sin no more. Whatever it is that's got you caught up in adultery, that's not who you are. I've designed you to be something different. How about this? When he sees Zacchaeus in a tree, which, by the way, that also must have been a very awkward situation, right? See a full-grown man just, like, up in a tree. Um, Zacchaeus is in this tree, and he's like, are you Zacchaeus? You're a tax collector. You're like the person who takes advantage of people worse than anybody else in our whole culture, right? Right. Yeah, I want to go to your house and have dinner with you today. Really? I have a label. That's fine. And we don't really know what happened in the story of what dinner was like at Zacchaeus' house, but here's what we do know. By the end of it, Zacchaeus says, I've been stealing money from people my whole life, and I'm going to pay back four times everything that I've taken. Zacchaeus is like making it rain at the dinner table. And, and Jesus says these words, salvation has come to this house today. Salvation. So Jesus sits there and he acknowledges the story. He goes, Zacchaeus, you're that guy. You're the guy who creates systemic oppression and has stolen from tons of people. Here's the thing. You can give it all back. You can be the most generous person. Jesus loves him into that, and look at how his life is transformed. I even think about it with the rich young ruler, right? It doesn't always have to be that someone actually accepts this, but Jesus is always, whether you accept it or not, Jesus is always speaking destiny over people. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He says, I have everything. I have it all figured out, and yet something is missing. What can I do? And Jesus says, listen, you're caught up in like a works mentality. You're trying to do this thing. You're trying to check the boxes, and you're looking for something, and you're never going to find it. The something that you're looking for is me. So what does Jesus say? He said, you only have to do one thing, sell everything you have and follow me. Jesus didn't give that invitation a whole bunch. I mean, he had 12 disciples. He's literally inviting this guy to be the 13th disciple. He's like, you don't have to be caught up in that. I mean, what, what, are, what good is like your consumeristic mindset going to do for you? What good's your power? Which, which good, what good is your youth? You can wake up with me every single morning. We'll have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, and I'll share my whole life with you. There's the opportunity and the invitation. Do you want it? He acknowledges his story, and then he speaks and affirms his future. The invitation is there. It said he went away sad that day because he had much wealth. But he didn't go, he didn't go away sad because Jesus didn't promise him a future that was good. And then, obviously, 
The big one is us. <laughs> you and me. I mean, those are all stories in the Bible, but the reality is, like, if you're in this room and you're a believer, Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? And so you remember the time in your total brokenness. You remember the person that you were, and the reality is God saw you in that and said, you, you're the kind of person I like. I acknowledge your story, and I'm going to create your future. Do you want to walk into it, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Augustine says this. He says, there's no saint without a past and no sinner without a future. I love that quote. And the reality is, when we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, we start to see people through those lenses. There is no saint without a past. We acknowledge our story. There is no sinner without a future. I would love this place to be the kind of place where everybody around here recognizes that's the kind of place where people know your story and they affirm your future. Whenever I go to Calvary Chapel of Delaware County, they speak life into me. They lock arms with me and they push me forward into my destiny. Here's a C.S. Lewis quote that I've always found super inspiring. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other towards one or the other of these destinations. I'm going to say that again. All day long, we are helping each other, in some degree, towards one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the all and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, horrors or everlasting pleasures. I picked these specific instances, not randomly, but because I've actually been able to walk with people in this community through a lot of this stuff. And I'm sure that you have your stories too. Have you ever realized, I mean, I, when I, this is something that, like, as I've gotten a little bit older, I just, it struck me that, like, you really can't give people advice about anything. Have you ever gotten there? Like, it's like, you kind of have what you think is good advice, and then you're like, here's what I've been doing for the last three days, so do you want to give it a try? It could probably change your life. And then you stop doing it on the fourth day, and it really didn't help them anyway. Oscar Wilde has one of my favorite quotes. He says, the best thing you can do with good advice is just pass it on. It's never of any use to yourself. <laughs> and it's so true. Like, I've, like, tried to, I've tried to, like, impart any kind of wisdom that I have into people's situations, and all I've found is that literally everyone just hits brick walls. Because advice doesn't count for much. But what I do know is when I do these two things, when I, affirm people, when I acknowledge people's stories and when I affirm their future, and when I treat them with honor, it starts to change things. So people have talked to me. I've had a person who's divorced. And they were like, I'm damaged goods. I'm all these types of things. And it's like, you have that conversation. It's like, I don't know if I have any advice for you but I do want to speak over you what God thinks of you, the person he desires you to be. And I see you through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, and I want to speak destiny into you. I have people who have been on the brink of divorce, and they say, I just don't know if I can stick this out. The reality is, like, 
it's, you know, there's, divorce has been in my family for generations. I never saw this modeled very well. Um, this person is acting this way, and I don't really know how to do this. And, and the reality is, I don't know. You can't get into the specifics of those situations and navigate. You can't give good advice in those situations. What I can do is say, well, here's what I know about you. You're a person of character. You're a person of integrity. I know that you're a person that can stay committed. You've committed to me in a friendship, and you love me through hard times. So I know that what you're capable of is staying committed to this. And I know that you, if you go to God, he will be faithful in seeing this through. I can promise you that. I've seen that in you, and I know that's your destiny. Not only that, but if you would, it will open up a relational intimacy that you would never have known otherwise. You're acknowledging someone's story, but you're speaking, you're, you're affirming their future. I have, uh, you know, a friend came to me, and he, had, he was in, struggling with, like, a bad porn addiction. And porn is, like, I mean, that's like a label, you know? It's like somehow 70% of people in our culture are addicted to porn, but, like, Anybody who even mentions it, it's like, ooh, really, you? <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, technically they're all over, aren't they? Um, but we treat this as like a shameful disease, and so people like hide in the corners with this type of thing. And I had a friend who talked to me about this, and I, it's just like, I don't really know like, how, how you beat an, an addiction, but I do know, that, I do know what God, the person that God has called you to be, and I've already seen things in your heart. I've already seen amazing things in you, that make you a man of integrity, someone who can treat women with respect and dignity, and someone who is, who is supposed to walk in freedom, so supposed to live a life in freedom and not be in the bondage of an addiction. And so I just want to speak that over you, that you're a person who's capable of this and that God desires this for you, that you can walk in the future of that. I don't know much about the shame and I don't have much advice of how to get out, to it, get out of it, but I can speak that destiny over you. I had a person who told me, I really don't think that I'm going to be a great dad. I'm scared to have kids. I didn't, see, uh, I didn't see fatherhood modeled very well, and so I just don't think like I'm actually capable of doing it. And I've already seen some things in my life that have given me hints, like this isn't going to go well. And I was like, no. I, um, I got a verse for that person and it said, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Look, even now it springs up like streams in the desert. And I just see the ability that this person has to break the generational cycle of bad fathers because God wants to come alongside them. God has this cardboard cutout of the person that they were supposed to be, and he's just trying to wiggle them into it. And we're resistant to it, and we don't even believe it ourselves, but the reality is we, as believers, as a community of people, have the ability to speak life into those situations and move people towards their destinies. I love this. Boaz honored Ruth by acknowledging her story and affirming her future. He spoke life into her situation and pushed her forward towards her destiny. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And I just want to close with this. Um, I was thinking, what if, what if Ruth and Boaz never went to the field that day? Um, what if Ruth was a victim and she said, you know what, I've been dealt some bad cards, and I'm at the bottom rung of society, and I have nothing to work with, and she never went out and gleaned. And what if Boaz, you know, what if he went to the field and he said, hey, who's that woman over there? And somebody said, it's a Moabite woman from Moab. And he said, ah, a Moabite. And he just walked off, you know, dismissed her, labeled her, and it was done. The story of Ruth would just be two chapters. And to be honest, I don't even think it would be in the Bible because it wouldn't be a very compelling story. But what you see is that 
Ruth's destiny was tied to being faithful to that small thing of gleaning. When she went to the field that day, she had very little, but her destiny, Boaz, was waiting in that field. And when Boaz went to the field that day, his destiny was there too. A woman gleaning in the corners, an immigrant woman gleaning in the corners. And they never could have known that their destinies were tied together by being faithful in what they were given. Character attracts character. And I think these two people recognize the character in each other. And so when we are faithful in honoring the things that God's given us, however big or small, and when we honor the people that, have brought in, that, have been brought, that God's brought into our world, it's amazing what can happen. And that's what I see in Ruth, too. Um, I just want to close with this, because I think this is really important. I think when I draw, when I, when I write these labels up here, um, a lot of times we talk about how we label other people. And... Um, and that's true, we do that, you know? But much more I've seen that we actually label ourselves. There are things that we speak over our, li- our, over our life that, um, that we basically just put ourselves into a category and we imagine that there are some things that we will never beat and there are some things that we'll never be able to get over and, there are, and we are trapped in the bondage of that. We start to believe lies about ourselves that things can't ever change. So I just wanna be a person who encourages you today, I want to acknowledge your story and I want to affirm your future. I think um, if there's anything that you believe, you know, if there's anything written up on this board, and this, this list could go way, way long, but if there's anything up here that you've identified with, I just want to tell you that that's not who you are. Um, scripture says that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things are new. And so I just want to speak that over you. And I want to invite you. We have a prayer team here. Um, you can come down front and receive prayer. We have a prayer room outside in the atrium. Um, a lot of people believe lies about themselves and don't have anyone around them who acknowledges their story and affirms their future. I just want to say I, that can start with me. I'll be the person, you know. And then if you're a person in the room who can also be that for people, I would appreciate if you could do that. If Calvary Chapel of Delaware County could be a place where we honor people, where we see people through Holy Spirit lenses, where we're able to actually say, I see you not as who you are, but as who you can be in Christ. Honestly, I think that's the only way we make it. Like anything that I am today, any closer that I move to God is not because I worked for it. It's because people saw something in me and said, Mike, I just want to see you move towards here. I have people in this room. I have, the friends I've met in New York have prayed over me of certain, about certain things that I've struggled with, and they've pushed me further towards the person that God desires me to be. That's our job as a community of believers. We're pushing each other towards our destiny. And I truly believe that God has, God has made us to be a specific kind of person. You'll always be restless, you'll always be unhappy, and you'll always be unfulfilled until you are that. And so when we're together, my job and your job is always just to push each other towards that. You 
can actually see it. That's the thing. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, when you pray with people, you actually can look at them and say, oh my gosh, I got a little peek at who God desires you to be. I want to pray you into that. I want to speak life into your situation. I want to push you forward into your destiny. So if you're somebody who labeled yourself, if you're somebody who believes some of these things about yourself, uh, some lies that have you in bondage and have you thinking that things will never change, head down to the front, man. I will pray for you. I will affirm. Uh, I will acknowledge your story, and I will affirm your destiny because I believe with confidence that God's doing a new thing in you and that the old things have passed away. So I'm going to pray for us real quick. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for your truth that you revealed through the book of Ruth. God, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see people the way that you see. I pray that you would strengthen us. Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would fill us, that you would be able um, to just work through us, to be able to push people towards their destiny. Father, I pray that Calvary Chapel of Delaware County would be a city on a hill to the to the people in this area, that they would be able to know this is a place that doesn't assign labels, that this is a place where people acknowledge your story and affirm your destiny. And I pray that people would come here and they would find love and acceptance. I pray that we would be a community that sees people, that truly sees people. Help us be that, Father. Help us to love people. Help us to love people the way that you have loved us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys.